So welcome to Faith Forum. For those of you, uh, especially those of you who are new to our campus uh, this semester, let me explain to you a little bit what Faith Forum is. Um, you know, one of the core um, goals for your education here at Ozark Christian College is that you learn how to critically think and also you develop the tools necessary to engage the culture around you. And so Faith Forum fits with that part of our objective. We want to bring in people like Dr. Guyvet to our campus um, just to, to challenge you to think more deeply about your faith and how your faith intersects with the culture in which you live. And, uh, and so I'm confident that Dr. Guyvet will help us in that task, not just today, but also tomorrow. Let me tell you uh, a few things about Dr. Guyvet, and then I'm just going to hand it over to him this morning. Um, so um, Dr. Guyvet has two MAs. He has an MA uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary in um, Biblical Studies and an MA from Gonzaga in Philosophy. He got his PhD in Philosophy from University of Southern California and my Notre Dame heart will grant some grace for that. Um, but he actually did his PhD dissertation on the topic that he's going to be talking about today and tomorrow, which is um, essentially the problem of evil. And uh, as I mentioned last week in chapel, when it comes to um, real-world issues hang-ups, problems that people have with faith, I can't think of a more relevant, more important issue to talk about than the problem of evil, pain, and suffering in the world. And so I'm glad that Dr. Guyvet is here to talk to us about this. Uh, Dr. Guyvet has been a professor of philosophy at Biola University since 1999, um, kind of specializes in the fields of epistemology, um, uh, philosophy of religion, and apologetics. He's written numerous books on topics like faith uh, and philosophy. Um, he's written books on the problem of evil, as he's going to be talking about today. He's also, the first book that I read, I don't think I told you this, um, Doug, but the first book of yours that I read was the book that you wrote with Habermas on miracles. Um, and that's how, that's how I actually made this connection with, uh, with Dr. Guyvet. Um, Guyvet is not a super common last name, and so... Um, I was I, I work alongside of um, Debbie and Larry Stout at Christ Church of Orinogo in the youth ministry area, and I discovered one day that Debbie's maiden name is Guyvet, and so the nerd in me asked her, um, "You wouldn't happen to be related to this guy? I just got done reading one of his books, Doug Guyvet. Do, do you? That's kind of a strange name. Do you know who that is?" And she's like, "Oh, Dougie. Oh, yeah, I know who that is." <laughs> So that's, that's kind of how we've made the connection, and I've been trying to get uh, Dr. Guyvet on our campus um, for a couple years, and uh, we were able to make it happen this fall, and so we are very happy to have him. Why don't you welcome Dr. Guyvet to our stage? Thank you, Chad. Chad made one mistake. I'm older than he thinks. I've been at Talbot since 1993. So I just finished my 25th year there, and I have a feeling that a lot of you were born during that time. Does that sound right? Yeah? Okay. So now that gives you some context for me, right? Uh, this morning I texted uh, Chad to let him know that I was here, and I put in there, I think I said, um, I'm here at the chapel now, Chad, and a flag popped up. You know how you get these different... Um, 
emojis or whatever that come up so that you can do shortcut things, right? And a flag popped up. Do you know what that was? That was the flag for the country of Chad. I don't know if that was something his parents intended when he was uh, born or not. All right. Well, this is our topic this morning. If God, why evil? You know, in uh, 2011, that's only been seven years now, a tornado touched down here in Joplin, not far from where you're sitting. And I'm wondering if anybody here remembers that event because you were here in the area or in Jasper County at the time. Anybody like that here? Okay, I thought that might be, be so. So you have a memory of that. Now, I would imagine that a lot of you were probably, I don't know, 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old, somewhere along in there at the time. But you never forget an experience like that, do you? And, of course, we weren't here, but we knew people who were. My sister and brother-in-law that Chad referred to were living here. And uh, they had recently moved into another home, but the home that they had been in before that was destroyed in the tornado. So that's one form that the problem of evil takes. It's the pain that comes with destruction like that. Now, the thing about that is that this was a natural disaster. It just happened out of the blue. There was very little warning. Uh, My understanding is that even though signals were sent out, very few people actually heard them and so weren't very prepared when that happened. But in a natural disaster where people are affected in a very significant way, it's still nobody's fault. You ever think about that? I mean, we experience pain sometimes because it's caused by other people. But in that case, it wasn't. So there's nobody to blame unless you want to ask the question, where is God in a situation like that? The only person you might consider blaming would be God himself. Now, that's one kind of evil, but another kind of evil... Uh, is related to what happens when people injure each other, when they bring harm to each other. So, for example, you may be following the news about Jada Kyle, who last year, when she was three years old, died of what's been called an abusive head trauma. And her mother's boyfriend is the primary suspect who uh, faces uh, very serious uh, charges. Um, because of the likelihood that he or at least somebody was responsible for causing this damage. And it was, in some sense, intentional. So now that's a different kind of evil now. That's the kind of evil that a person can inflict on another person. And so evil can strike us on different levels in different ways, and we experience pain in the midst of it, suffering... And sometimes it reaches a kind of emotional crescendo where we just want to scream. Do you recognize this painting by Edvard Munch, the Norwegian expressionist? He tells the story that he was crossing the bridge into the city of Oslo when he was feeling the same kind of intensity. And he says, let's see, I have the quote here. I felt an infinite scream 
passing through nature. I think we can sometimes relate to that. That was a hundred years ago is when he painted that, but the problem hasn't really changed for us, has it? You may recognize and sympathize with Bart Simpson. Now, I want to give you, Homer Simpson, I want to give you an outline of our topic today. There are a number of things that I would like for us to cover, and it's going to take uh, all of the time that we have together today to get through all of this. And I should warn you, you know, my field is philosophy, and uh, so we work in the realm of arguments with premises and, and conclusions, and these premises will have numbers in front of them. So you can kind of follow the progression of the argument. And I have to warn you that that's, you'll be seeing arguments of that sort. And I hope that you're comfortable with that because um, that's part of getting a, a college or a university education, right, is to be able to think through a progression of premises to a conclusion. So we're going to be doing that together today. And I think when we do that, it'll prove to be clearer and more helpful than it would be if we just talked in general terms about this issue. But first we need to ask the question, what is the problem of evil exactly? You know, I have debated atheists in universities and I've had lots of encounters with people in my field at conferences and through publications and friendships and so forth, and also with people who are not within my field. And I'll talk to them about the existence of God and why I believe that God exists. And invariably, people will say to me, well, what about evil? And the question is an interesting question because they're not really saying themselves what the problem is. They're not telling me why evil is a problem for what I believe about God's existence. And so my initial response is to say, well, what about it? Because I think it's their responsibility to articulate the objection. Now, I know what the objection is. But if they're going to challenge my belief by referring to evil, don't you think they have a responsibility to be able to say what exactly this problem is? And so we're going to talk about that uh, as well. I'm going to give you an example of two different ways people argue from evil against theism. Now, what do I mean by theism? I simply mean the belief that there is a God who is all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, perfectly morally good, or I'll use the phrase, the word omnibenevolent. You know the word benevolent. This is a being who is benevolent in every conceivable way, perfectly morally good. And so theism is the view that there does exist a being of this sort who created the universe and sustains the universe in existence. There's, of course, a lot more we could say about God than that, but theism is a label we use for that and more. And then I'm going to give you an argument for theism from evil. Would you like to hear an argument from evil for theism? Well, I hope we have time for that, and then we'll talk about Christianity and the problem of evil because Christianity is challenged in unique ways by this problem in comparison with other religions. But at the same time, Christianity has resources for responding to this problem that aren't available to people of other faiths. So what is 
the problem of evil. Well, there are two ways to think about the problem. One is to think of it in intellectual terms. So the problem of evil is an intellectual obstacle to belief that God exists. It's philosophical. As such, it is an obstacle to Christian belief in God. It's a reason why some will say, I simply cannot believe that God exists. But there's another problem that's less philosophical in tone. It's the problem as an emotional obstacle to trusting in God. As such, it is an obstacle to Christian fellowship with God. So you might believe there's a God, but because of pain and suffering in your own life, you have difficulty really trusting God or or believing that God has your interests in mind, really cares about you. So you could be a Christian and be frustrated with this dimension of God's relationship to suffering in your life. Now, as we get into our topic, we need to make three distinctions, three important distinctions. The first distinction is between the intellectual and the emotional problem, as I just described it. The second distinction is between two forms that evil can take. One is called moral evil and the other is called natural evil. I alluded to these when I was talking about the difference between what happened to this little three-year-old girl a year ago, that's moral evil, and what happened with the tornado a few more years ago, and that was a form of natural evil. Then we'll make a distinction between the logical argument from evil against the existence of God and, on the other hand, what's called the evidential argument against the existence of God, also from evil. So there are two forms of philosophical argument. So first, the intellectual problem and the emotional problem. What is that difference? You recognize this sculpture, right, of the thinker. Right? And here we see someone who's sort of intellectually inclined. Right? He represents the, the, the life of the mind and reflection on the problems of humanity. But I came across a statue that I'd not seen before. I haven't been to New York City since uh, 2011, but, or 9-11. But here is the statue. It's called the Kneeling Fireman. And it's the 911 memorial statue that's in front of where the Twin Towers were. And I let this represent the emotional problem. You see the difference between the kneeling fireman on the one hand and the thinker on the other? They represent different responses to what goes on in our world. Now, when it comes to the emotional problem, we don't need a philosophical argument. We don't need a logical presentation. If you go to someone who is struggling with emotional pain or the immediacy of loss in their lives, the last thing you want to do is give them an argument that God is just, right? What you need to do is provide emotional support and spiritual support. A person in that situation needs the touch of a pastor or a counselor, someone tender-hearted when it comes to things like that. And I'm not playing that role for you this morning. That's not my job today. On a different occasion, I might share with you what I believe are some of the spiritual benefits of the suffering that we experience. 
But today we're talking about the philosophical problem. So I want you to understand that as we get into this and understand that it's the other problem, the intellectual problem that we're discussing. Now then, there's a distinction between moral evil and natural evil. Again, I've uh, noted this distinction. Uh, This distinction has been famously alluded to in poetry. Alfred Lord Tennyson, for example, in his very long but probably his most famous poem, In Memoriam, written in 1850, says this, Who trusted God was love indeed and love creation's final law. Though nature read in truth and claw, with ravine shrieked against his creed. Now that's the key phrase there. Nature read in tr- t- uh, tr- uh, tooth and claw. Nature read in tooth and claw refers to the kind of, of evil that goes on in the world of, of animals. Where there's predation. Where one animal is a predator and another animal suffers the pain of predation. You've probably seen this on Animal Planet, for example. That's a form of natural evil. But another form of evil, of course, is moral evil. And Robert Burns, another poet, in the poem Man Was Made to Mourn, it's a dirge poem, has said this. This is stanza seven of that poem. Many and sharp... The the, many and sharp, the numerous ills inwoven with our frame, more pointed still we make ourselves regret, remorse, and shame. And man whose heaven-erected face, the smiles of love adorn, man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn. Here the key phrase is man's inhumanity to man. It's what we do to each other. It's almost like predatory behavior in the natural world. But, you know, sometimes we don't really make a distinction between natural evil and moral evil. Sometimes we're just feeling pain. The existential angst. Oftentimes this is in the realm of relationships. It could be relationships with parents. It could be relationships with, with old friends. It could be with neighbors. It could be with with people you work with or with your boss. It could be with people that you room with at college, right? Relationships are a cauldron sometimes of swirling emotion that can often lead to pain. The female musician, Lord, has said, everyone's competing for a love they won't receive. That's not a very optimistic view of the world, is it? But there's something realistic about it that we can relate to. So our chief concern today is with evil as an intellectual obstacle to Christian belief in God. And that reminds us of the distinction between the logical argument from evil and the evidential argument from evil, both of which need our attention. So let's look first at two forms of the argument, beginning with the logical argument from evil. And let's see if we can understand the basic claim of this argument, get kind of the the overall big picture view, and then we'll look at its detailed formulation, what it looks like when you just cut all the premises out of the rhetoric and nail down the argument in its pure skeletal form. 
Our objective is to find a response to this argument. And in the end, I think we will be able to identify what I call the Achilles heel, the most vulnerable point of this argument. And we can actually solve this particular problem of evil. I think we can actually answer this argument. So here is a preliminary formulation of the argument. It has two premises and a conclusion. Really, it's a very simple argument. Nothing complex here. Look at the first premise. If God exists, then evil does not exist. Second premise, but evil does exist. Therefore, what? Therefore, God does not exist. Now, this argument is valid, which is not to say that it's true. Sometimes we use the word valid when we mean true. That's not what we're talking about here. Arguments are valid if the conclusion follows from the premises, whether the premises are true or false. So the premises may not be true or they may be true, but if the conclusion follows logically as a matter of logical necessity from those premises, then the argument is valid. And we have to concede that this argument is valid. So we can't object to the argument by saying, well, you know, that conclusion just doesn't follow from the premises. It does. So if we disagree with this argument or with this conclusion, we have to find some other problem with the argument. And that problem is going to have to be with one or both of the premises. We have to ask the question, are these premises true? And why should we think that they are true? Well, again, the first question is a conditional claim. If God exists, then evil does not exist. That's got a, an, what, what's called in logic an antecedent in the conditional and a consequent in the conditional. All right, so the antecedent comes first, it's before, and the consequent comes after in the statement. All right? Now, in an argument of that sort, if you can deny the consequent, then you have to deny the antecedent. So here we have, as the consequent, evil does not exist. But the second premise denies that. And so because of that, you can deny the antecedent which is that God exists. So if, if God exists, then evil does not, but evil does, therefore God does not. It's pretty straightforward. Now, why should we think something like this? The main reason is that God is supposed to be a being of great power or he's supposed to be omnipotent and he's supposed to be perfectly morally good, again, to use the word omnibenevolent. These are supposed to be true about God. So we have two things that are supposed to be true about God and we have the fact of evil in the world. And it seems to many that these are logically incompatible claims, that God is omnipotent, that God is omnibenevolent, and that there's evil in the world. These are logically incompatible claims. When we have three logically incompatible claims, philosophers sometimes call that an inconsistent triad, right? So you have evil and then two things about God's nature. Now, what's interesting about an, an inconsistent triad is that you could deny any one of these three and you're good, you're okay, you're good to go. If you deny that evil exists, then you could say, okay, well then maybe there is a God who is omnibenevolent and omnipotent. No problem. Or you could say, huh, maybe evil is a reality and there is a being who is omnipotent, but he's just not that good. So if he wanted to prevent evil, he could, 
but because he's not omnibenevolent, he chooses not to sometimes because he doesn't really care that much. You see how you could get consistency that way. You have to sacrifice one of God's properties to get consistency. You could reverse it. You could say, well, maybe God is good, and yet there is evil because God can't prevent evil. God's power is limited. And there you have to sacrifice another attribute of God in order to solve the problem of evil, which solves nothing, especially for Christian people who believe that God is both omniscient, sorry, omnibenevolent and omnipotent. Of course, he's omniscient as well. So there's supposed to be an inconsistent triad here for anyone who believes that all three are true. Evil exists, God is omnibenevolent, and God is omnipotent. That's the problem. Well, let's ask the question, what does omnipotence imply and what does omnibenevolence imply? In other words, why should it turn out that a being who has those attributes would entail, if a being like that existed, would entail that there is no evil in the world? Let's start with omnibenevolence. What is implied by omnibenevolence? Well, some atheists have claimed that God would prevent evil if God could prevent evil. So you've got would and could. Would, because he's perfectly morally good, that's what he would want to do, and could, because he's omnipotent. All right? So God would prevent evil if he could. That's what it means to say he's omnibenevolent. So... In other words, a perfectly good being always eliminates evil as far as it can. What does omnipotence imply? Omnipotence turns things around and says God could prevent evil if God wanted to prevent evil. God could prevent evil if God would prevent evil. So I'm using the word would here to mean would be willing to. So now he's got power... The question is, does he have desire or intention? In other words, there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do. Now go back to the original formulation of the logical argument from evil. First premise, if God exists, then evil does not. But evil does exist, second premise. Conclusion, therefore, God does not exist. Remember now that the problem is an inconsistent triad, which means that given these two properties that God has, it's not possible for evil to exist. So now we have to enlarge our argument to show how those two attributes of God are playing a role in the argument so that the conclusion follows. So here is an amplification of the argument. First premise is very like the first premise in the original formulation, except now it makes explicit what it is about God that creates the problem. Premise 1 says, if God exists and is omnipotent and perfectly good, then evil does not exist. I hope you can see how that argument really looks like an extension of the first, uh, that premise looks like an extension of the premise we saw in the first argument. But now we can unpack that, and that's why I have in yellow font here, 1A and 1B, to clarify what we mean by premise one. And you've seen this before on two previous slides. 1A, a perfectly good God, uh, always eliminates evil as far as it can. And 1B, uh, there are no limits to what a perfectly powerful being can do. And yet premise two says, 
evil exists. And so, uh, by logical necessity, God does not exist. It looks like a pretty compelling argument. Is there anything that we can say in response? We had better be able to say something because if we can't say something about this, then we're stuck with irrational belief in God. We believe something that we should not believe given the reality of evil in the world. Well, I think that we can answer this objection. So what is our reply? Remember, the problem is one of consistency. How can you consistently believe those three things, that evil exists, that God is omnibenevolent, and that God is omnipotent? How do we dispel the impression of inconsistency? Well, first, the burden of proof. Let's call the person who denies that God exists the atheologian. The atheologian must show that the theist must accept premises 1A and 1B. Remember, those were supposed to be the implications of divine omnibenevolence and divine omnipotence. But why should we say that? Why should we think that God, who was omnibenevolent, would choose to eliminate evil as far as it could, and that if God was omnipotent, that's exactly what he could do? Why think that? Well, some would say, well, it's pretty obvious that that's what's true about God. Well... The atheist needs to give us a reason to think that. Second, I would say that evidence for the existence of God is evidence that the existence of God is compatible with the existence of evil. So here's what's interesting about this. So we have um, evidence that evil exists, right, and that it's a problem for God's existence. Okay, fine. We've got evidence for that. But we also have evidence for God's existence. Now, how are you going to weigh the evidence? Are you going to give more weight to the evidence from evil for the non-existence of God? Or are you going to give more weight to the evidence for God's existence over that? You see, so it's not just a question, how do we answer questions about evil? But there are other things we need to explain about the universe and about human experience. For example, why is there something rather than nothing? Where did the universe come from in the first place? If it had a beginning, then it had a cause. And if it had a cause, something must have been the cause. Something must have been powerful enough to bring the universe into existence. There's evidence on the other side. That's the point I'm making. So if there is good reason to believe that God does exist, then there's good reason to think that God's existence is actually compatible with there being evil in the world. But we can do better than that even. The existence of God is demonstrably compatible with the existence of evil. We can actually show that God's existence is compatible with the reality of evil. Would you like to see how that's done? This is where you're supposed to say, yeah, please go ahead, right? I think you've got teachers that are listening, so they're probably saying, okay, that's an A, that's a B minus. Let's see if we can demonstrate the logical compatibility of God and evil. Well, first of all, let's reply to 1A, right? That, That one principle, that one premise in our argument, 1A, which says that a perfectly good being always eliminates evil as far as it can. Well, what if this? 
What if God has a morally sufficient reason for permitting all the evils there are? That's a logical possibility. We may not know what his reasons are, but he might have reasons that justify his permission. It might seem really unlikely that God has good enough reasons to allow the evils that we experience But unlikely doesn't mean impossible. So it's possible that God does have morally sufficient reasons for permitting all the evils and all the suffering and all the pain that we experience. Now remember, this isn't a sermon designed to comfort the afflicted. We're just dealing with logical arguments here and responding to critics. And this is a very good response. They assume that it's logically impossible for God to have a morally sufficient reason for permitting all these evils. But they don't have a good argument for that. Why? Because it is logically possible. Now, what do I mean by a morally sufficient reason for permitting evil? What I mean is there would be a reason why God would be willing to permit evil that would still be consistent with his moral purposes in the world. It would have no bearing on his moral goodness. He could still be morally good, but because of the moral sufficiency of his reasons for permitting it, he allows it. All right? Now, we may not know what those reasons are. And maybe there is no God, and maybe there are no such reasons. This merely claims that it is logically possible that God has such reasons. And that's all you need for an argument that says... These claims are logically incompatible. You see, if the claim is that those three aspects of our belief, that evil exists, that God is omnibenevolent, and that God is omnipotent, if the claim is that those are logically incompatible, we've just shown that they are logically compatible. Right? We're not showing that God has morally sufficient reasons. We're showing that he could. And because he could, the argument dissipates. Now, what about the other claim, the one about God's omnipotence? Remember 1B, there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do. Well, what if God could not create free creatures who never sin? That's logically possible too. You see, if God chooses to create free creatures like ourselves, then he may give us a measure of responsibility for what goes on in the world. And he respects our freedom by allowing us to make wrong choices as well as good choices. And it wouldn't be very meaningful to say that we're free if we could never make a wrong choice. And so man's inhumanity to man may be a consequence of the abuse of human freedom. But the human freedom that is abused is itself a good that God created. And it's logically possible that even an omnipotent being, quote-unquote, could not prevent free creatures from doing the wrong thing unless he wanted to violate their freedom. And that would be a bad thing. That would be a bad thing because it wouldn't be consistent with God's value of human freedom. Now you could say, well, why create free creatures? Because it is good to have creatures in the world who are capable of exercising freedom, powers of self-determination, choices that can be for great things, great goods, even though at risk of allowing for the possibility of bad choices. 
So in other words, for all we know, an omnipotent God is not able to create a world of significantly free creatures who do no evil. And second, an omnibenevolent God has a morally sufficient reason, maybe known only to himself, for permitting even the most horrendous evils that occur. Now notice I say this, for all we know. Notice I don't say we actually do know. Here all I'm claiming is that this is true for all we know. And as long as that's the case, then the logical argument, argument from evil is defeated. So what is the Achilles heel of the logical argument from evil? Well, its supposed strength is its greatest weakness. What is its supposed strength? Its logical form. This argument is supposed to give the atheist the strongest possible argument that God does not exist. It's an argument that is supposed to demonstrate that it's inconsistent logically to believe that God exists and that evil exists. In other words, the reality of evil entails that God does not exist. That's as good as it gets for an atheist. And we just look at an argument and a response that shows that it doesn't get as good as that. This is not really a very good argument from evil against the existence of God. But the atheist has an alternative. The atheist has a fallback position in an argument we call the evidential argument from evil. So now we turn to the second argument from evil against the existence of God. And here we need to make some other um, points along the way. First, two worries about what I call the free will defense and some key terms that are uh, important to understanding this argument. Uh, and then we'll look at a basic formulation of the evidential argument, give a reply, and see what the Achilles heel is for that argument. So first, why worry about the evidential argument? Well, the first is that uh, some people will say, fine, you believe that it's logically possible that God permits these evils for a morally sufficient reason. But do you really believe that he does? I mean, isn't that pretty hard to believe? Can you think of any good reason that God would have for permitting the death of this three-year-old child or the deaths of over a hundred people after a tornado or a hurricane or some other natural disaster? Can you really believe that? Can you think of a reason that would justify that? And so it can feel like this this first argument, though it's successful, doesn't really satisfy. The second worry is about natural evil. Okay, so fine. We can explain why there's moral evil in the world if we can say that God creates free creatures who do bad things to each other. But what about natural evil? What about natural disasters? You can't blame human beings for that sort of thing. So you can't really offer a free will defense in response to that particular problem. And so we have to deal with this other problem called the evidential argument from evil. And here I want to define three key terms. The first term is the term gratuitous evil. And we use the word gratuitous in a lot of ways. Maybe when you're thinking about movies, um, you think how much profanity is used, the F-bomb is used all the way through the movie. You say, yeah, that was kind of gratuitous, didn't need to be there, right? 
They could have made a movie without so much of that or without, without any of that. Okay? So we use the word gratuitous in certain ways. I think there, that word is familiar. Some think there is such a thing as gratuitous evil. Evil that just doesn't have to be there. The second key word is inscrutable evil. Inscrutable evil. This is evil that I'll define in a moment, but it has to do with our ability to know that evils of a certain kind exist. And then we'll talk about apparently gratuitous evil. So what is gratuitous evil exactly? Evil is gratuitous if there is no morally sufficient reason that God could have for permitting that evil. That would make the evil gratuitous. If if there was some evil that occurred, some instance of pain or suffering that was so bad that even God could not have any morally justifying reason for permitting it, that would make it gratuitous. That would be like a movie where it doesn't have to happen for God's purposes to be realized. That's gratuitous evil. What is inscrutable evil? This one you have to look at really closely to appreciate what's going on here. Inscrutable evil is evil such that if God exists and God does have a morally sufficient reason for permitting all the evils that there are, we simply do not know what that reason is or could be. It's inscrutable. Some people try to unscrew the inscrutable. They try to understand what you really can't deep down understand. And there are, lot, there are many mysteries in the world, mysteries in science, mysteries in theology, mysteries about human nature and psychology and sociology. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot that's inscrutable. Well, inscrutable evil is evil such that even if God does exist, even if God has a morally sufficient reason for permitting it, we simply don't know what that reason is. Right? What is apparently gratuitous evil? Apparently gratuitous evil is evil that seems gratuitous on the grounds that it is inscrutable. Okay, so you've got gratuitous built in, right? So that borrows from the definition of gratuitous evil. And you've got inscrutability built in, and that's why we call it apparently inscrutable, apparently gratuitous. So it seems to us, given its inscrutability, that there is no morally sufficient reason that God could have for permitting it. All right? So we have these three terms, gratuitous evil, inscrutable evil, and apparently gratuitous evil. With that in mind, we can formulate the argument. And here it is in its basic form. Premise number one, if God exists, then gratuitous evil does not exist. Now, this is like premise number one in the first argument, except now we've added the word gratuitous, right? Then premise number two says, but gratuitous evil does not exist, probably. Now, we have to say probably because we don't know for sure that there is gratuitous evil, but it seems to us there is because of inscrutability. And therefore, probably God does not exist. Now, God might exist even if there is apparently gratuitous evil, but it's unlikely is the way this argument goes. Now, here's the crucial question. This is absolutely the crucial question for anyone who uses this argument. Why think 
that there is gratuitous evil in the world. Why think that? And I would say that the only evidence that we have for the existence of genuinely gratuitous evil is the inscrutability of some evils. In other words, there are some evils, the most horrendous, the most horrific evils that actually occur that just seem beyond our comprehension. We could not think of a reason God could have that would justify his permission. That's our evidence that some evils are genuinely gratuitous. Now, here's a reply. Does gratuitous evil exist? Well, again... We place the burden of proof on the atheist. The atheologian needs needs to give us a compelling reason to think that what seems gratuitous really is gratuitous. Very hard to do. Second, shouldn't we be, if if this is all we have, is if this argument is all we have, and we have no evidence for the existence of God, no other evidence against the existence of God, shouldn't we rather be agnostic about that second proposition rather than confident that it's true? What was that second proposition? That second proposition is that probably gratuitous evil exists. But what makes that probable? See, there's nothing that makes that probable. What makes it seem probable is that we don't know what the reason could be. Well, if that's the case, then we should simply withhold judgment. We should say, gosh, it seems to me like there's gratuitous evil in the world, but I don't know if there is or not. Now we're agnostic. What happens to the argument then? It, it drains, this consideration drains the argument of all of its force. It's no longer a powerful argument. Now we have evidence that proposition number two is false. That it's false that there's gratuitous evil in the world. And the evidence that we have for that is evidence for the existence and power and goodness of God. What's the Achilles heel, then, of this argument? The Achilles heel is that the only thing that we really have to go on in believing that there's gratuitous evil in the world is inconclusive. It's the inscrutability of evil. So rather than being confident that God does not exist, or even that it's likely that God does not exist, we should withhold judgment and say, gosh, I don't know whether there's a God or not. I mean, after all, there are evils in the world, and I don't know what to make of them. That doesn't give you a very good argument against the existence of God. So those are two arguments against the existence of God, against theism. Let me give you an argument for the existence of God that starts from evil as well. And here's the argument. First premise, evil exists and is a departure from the way things ought to be. So this is a definition of evil, if you like. It's a way of characterizing evil. And I find that very few people disagree with this premise, that evil is a departure from the way things ought to be. So when somebody suffers, you say, you know, it shouldn't be that way. When we talk about tragedy, we realize that's a departure from how things ought to be. Second premise, well, if evil is a departure from the way things ought to be, then there is a way things ought to be. I mean, if evil is a departure from that and there is evil, then there has to be a way things ought to be. So third premise says, if there is a way things ought to be, then there is a design plan for things. Or there would be no reason to think that that's how they ought to be. Well, the fourth premise says, if there is a design plan for things about how they ought to be, then there is a designer. 
No design without designer. No in, no apparent intention deep down for how things ought to be without an intender. And this designer, conclusion, statement number five, we call God. Very simple argument for God's existence from evil. So if somebody says, what about evil? You believe in God, really? What about evil? What about pain? What about suffering? First thing you have to ask is, well, what about it? What's the argument? And then you're ready for them, right? You already know what those two arguments, what the argument can look like. And sometimes I've found that they don't quite know how to state the argument. They're kind of stumbling along and say, well, maybe this is what you have in mind. Is this the argument? And I give them the logical argument. Yeah, that's it. That's the argument. So what do you say about that? Or they might say, and then you respond to it and say, well, okay, I don't know then. But there's still a problem here. Say, well, maybe this is the argument. You give them the evidential argument. Say, oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You're helping them formulate the argument. But then you have a response. But your response includes now an argument from evil for the existence of God. And as I said, I hoped that I would be able to give you that argument. Here are some verses you could write down if you want to go and research in Scripture how the problem of gratuitous evil might be described, how it might be discussed. Remember Joseph said to his brothers, you know, when you intended evil for me, God intended it for good. Joseph didn't know when he was first uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. He, He didn't know what good purpose God had for permitting it. But that was gradually revealed over time when he discovered this. But here's a really critical one. The crucifixion of Jesus. Was that an evil? The crucifixion of Jesus? Do you know that critical scholars, historians of the New Testament all agree that Jesus Christ was crucified. They agree that he was unworthy of this horrific form of execution. He was innocent. He didn't deserve it. I've done a number of public debates on the question, does God exist? And I remember one time, sticking around afterwards, a group of students just sort of created a circle around me. And one of them said, we've all got a question for you. We want to know, why did Jesus Christ have to die such a horrific death. And I thought they were Christians. And it turned out they weren't. And they were wondering, why would God allow that to happen to Jesus Christ? They understood this to be gratuitous evil. Do you see the point of view? See, from a human point of view, the crucifixion of Jesus looks like it's an utterly gratuitous thing. What reason could God possibly have for permitting the crucifixion of Jesus? Remember, this is on a purely human level. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know what? That's what it means for evil to be inscrutable. We just can't know on our our own, all by ourselves, what reasons God has for permitting some of the worst things that ever happened. But sometimes God will pull back the curtain and reveal to us what we could know no other way. And that's what he did with the crucifixion of Jesus. He provided us with an explanation for God's permission of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And do you know, it is because of the great good of salvation for people in peril. What people? People like you and me. We experience the good of God's permission of this apparently gratuitous evil, which would be inscrutable without divine revelation, 
called the resurrect or the crucifixion of Jesus. And the great good for Jesus that occurs is that he is raised from the dead. Would there be a resurrection without a crucifixion? Could Jesus Christ have been raised from the dead without being dead? The question answers itself, right? And so we have an example of the most compelling kind of a case where an evil that seems to us to be profoundly gratuitous is not gratuitous after all. It's inscrutable until we have divine revelation that God had a good purpose for permitting that evil. I want to give you just uh, four uh, points of summary for what we've talked about so far. I went too far. The logical argument from evil is defeated. The evidential argument from evil is defeated. Evil is actually evidence for the existence of God, and Christianity offers a uniquely hopeful perspective on evil. I'm going to tell you a real quick story, and then Chad's going to come back up here. I was in Sweden giving a series of lectures a number of years ago, and I was lecturing on the problem of evil at the University of Lund. And there was a Q&A discussion, much like we'll have over uh, after lunch here today, um, um, uh, in the audience. And so people got to ask their questions. And one gentleman stood up and he said something I've heard many times since. He said, you know, sir, if I was God, I would not permit all the evils there are. I simply wouldn't do it. If I was God, I would have made things different. And I said, you know what? I believe you and I agree that's probably true if you had God's power. If you had God's power, you would probably do things differently. But tell me, what would you do if you had God's knowledge? And you can't answer that question unless you do. You see, you can't say what you would do if you were omniscient because you're not omniscient. That's a pretty significant limitation. If you want to see what it looks like when a person exercises divine power without divine knowledge, just go watch the movie Bruce Almighty. You'll see the point. Thank you.